Well, it's good to be together uh, this morning. Uh, it's good to uh, once again have the opportunity to open the Word of God together uh, and to receive what the Lord has uh, to say to us through His Word. Uh, so if you have your Bible with you this morning, please open up to the book of Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Now, looking for a text on the resurrection in the New Testament is not a difficult task. That is because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just the climax to all four of the gospel accounts. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the dominant theme of the entire New Testament. Uh, In fact, there are at least 185 specific references to the resurrection of Jesus Christ throughout the 27 books of the New Testament. Uh, And our text this morning is one of those references, Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. Uh, And so as we read uh, this verse and as we consider its truth together this morning, I pray that the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ will sink deep into our hearts this Easter Sunday morning. Uh, And so let us read our text. It's just one verse, the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 11. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Father, we thank you for the wonderful and the glorious truth of the resurrection this morning. We thank you that this truth of the resurrection is not just some abstract concept. It's not just some distant idea but it is something that is a reality not only in history but personally in each and every one of our lives and so father as we consider the truth uh, of this verse the truth of the resurrection and the implications of Christ's resurrection for each and every one of us father I pray that you would grant us uh, the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you Enlighten our eyes by your spirit, we pray, so we may know the mighty power that you have, that you worked when Christ Jesus rose from the dead, and that we might truly grasp what it means that that very power is the same power that dwells in each and every one of us in Christ. So, Father, we ask that you would bless this time, bless your word to each and every one of our hearts as we give you praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we're considering really this one single truth, that if the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then that same Spirit of God will most certainly give life to your mortal body. And this is a promise of God Almighty himself, that if the Spirit of God dwells in you, 
then even though one day your physical body will die, God will one day raise your body from the dead just like he did the body of Jesus Christ. Now, before we begin to sort of unpack what all that means, it may be a good idea to begin by defining what we mean by resurrection. After all, it is Resurrection Sunday. What are we talking about when we are talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Uh, Well, a very simple definition of resurrection is this. It is the raising to life after death. Very simple definition. Resurrection is the raising to life after death. Uh, But that simple definition is open to a little bit of misunderstanding and many people confuse resurrection uh, with two other words beginning with R, resuscitation and reincarnation. One of those is a real thing, the other is not. And it's important that we make clear this morning that when we are talking about resurrection, we are not talking about resuscitation, nor are we talking about reincarnation. We are talking about resurrection. And so what is the difference? Listen carefully. Reincarnation is defined as the coming back to life after biological death in a completely different body, whether human, animal, or other, only to die again. And repeat the cycle. Resurrection is not reincarnation. Reincarnation is not something that is true. What is resuscitation? Resuscitation is the raising to life after biological death of the same body, only to die again. And resuscitation is not resurrection. Now that does happen. People, their hearts stop beating and they get resuscitated and then they live and only to die again. But resurrection is something completely different. Because resurrection is the raising to life after biological death in the same yet newly glorified body never to die again. It is a resurrection into glory, into an eternal existence. Now you think, well, what will that be like? What will this new resurrected body be like? And that's a great question. We'll come on to that a little later. But first, let's dive into our text here. Revelation, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. And the first thing I want you to notice is a very small word at the very beginning of the verse. The verse begins, but if. If. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There is that promise of God here in this verse of life to your mortal bodies, the promise of the resurrection of our bodies, but it is a conditional promise 
that will happen only if the conditions stated are true. Now, there are two big conditions here in Romans chapter 8 and verse 11. There are two big ifs. The first is implied. The second is clearly stated. Firstly, there is the if of the resurrection of Jesus. Did God raise Jesus from the dead? Is that true? Do you believe that is true? That is the first big if. The second big if is the if of your conversion. Have you received the indwelling Holy Spirit? Are you truly born again? And if you can answer truthfully, wholeheartedly and sincerely before God, yes, to both of those questions, then this promise is the promise of God to you, that the same Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead will one day give life to your mortal bodies. The opposite, though, is also true. If either of those two statements, if either of those two conditions are not true, then this promise of God is not for you. Your mortal body won't be raised unto certain life, only unto certain judgment. And so we have these two questions before us, the two most important questions that anybody can ask and everyone needs to answer. Did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? And does the Spirit of God dwell in you? And this morning, I want to show you how we can answer both questions in the affirmative with the utmost certainty. And also, what this promise of God means to us, both in this life and in the life that is to come. So let's just consider this first question then. It's implied, this first if. Did the Spirit of God raise Jesus from the dead? Now you may have seen this past week uh, a survey commissioned by the BBC found that 25% of Christians in the UK don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a slight problem with that statistic. And that is that a person who doesn't believe in the resurrection is not a Christian. In fact, 100% of Christians believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. uh, Because if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you are not and cannot be a Christian. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of the Christian faith. The entire Christian faith stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, And that's not just me saying that. The Apostle Paul said that. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 14, I'll read it to you. Paul said this. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead don't rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished 
If in this life only we have hope in Christ, then we are of all men the most pitiable. And so Paul is simply saying this, if Jesus Christ is not risen from the dead, then we are all completely wasting our time. Our lives are a total waste. Not only that, we're all liars if we tell people that it's true. Uh, And more seriously than that, we are still in our sins with no hope of forgiveness. And so, if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, Paul says that Christianity is not true. Therefore, it shouldn't be believed. But, and of course it's a big but, if Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, then Christianity must be true. And therefore, it must be believed. The question then is, is it true? Did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? Now, most people assume that that question is a question of faith. It's a subjective question. Yeah, you may believe it, I don't believe it. You know, it, it's, we all believe different things. It's a subjective question of faith. But it's not a question of faith. In fact, it's not a question of faith at all. It's actually a question of history. And to determine whether any historical event has taken place, what do you do? Well, you look at the evidence. You look at the facts. And there's been a lot of research and a lot of study conducted around this area of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I read a great summary uh, of a lot of the books I've read, actually, in an article that I saw on Twitter, Justin Brierley, then if any of you heard of Justin Brierley, uh, he has a radio show on Premier Christian Radio called Unbelievable on Saturday afternoons. Highly recommend it. It's a great show. Uh, and he, um, he wrote a short article summarizing what is known as the minimalist facts approach uh, to proving the truth of the resurrection. The idea is, is there are some basic, fundamental, simple facts that pretty much all scholars agree on, whether liberal Uh, whether conservative, uh, even whether Christian or not, or so on. Uh, And the point is, is that when you bring all these basic facts together that everybody agrees on, the truth of the resurrection is the only rational explanation of the actual facts surrounding the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, And in his article, Justin Briley pointed out four of these facts. Fact number one is that Jesus died by crucifixion. No serious scholar today disputes the fact that Jesus both lived and then died by crucifixion at the hands of the Romans. And that's obviously an important fact to establish because there can be no resurrection without a dead body. And there are some who will say still today, well, you know, Jesus, just a myth, he never really lived. Uh, Nobody really believes that, who's actually studied the evidence. Jesus clearly lived, and it is universally believed that he died on the cross at the hands uh, of the Romans. Uh, And so that's the first fact. Jesus, uh, he lived and he died by crucifixion. Uh, The second fact is the fact of the empty tomb. 
and the fact that the body was never found. Now, again, this is widely accepted that the tomb was empty when the women showed up on that Sunday morning uh, to embalm Jesus' body, and subsequently that his body was never found. And that is striking for several reasons. Firstly, because the tomb itself was guarded by Roman guards. So it's impossible that somebody could have come in and stolen the body because there was a big stone in the way and there were these Roman guards who you did not mess with. Some people suggest, well, the disciples came in, you know, beat up the Roman guards, you know, these scrawny fishermen. They came in and took out the Roman with his sword and his shield uh, and then pushed away this massive two-ton stone and stole the body never to be found again. I mean, that's just absurd. It's also interesting because the Jewish authorities at the time were trying to crush Christianity before it would get any traction. And the easiest way to crush Christianity, uh, these people who were coming around saying Jesus is risen from the dead, was to go get Jesus' body and say, no, he hasn't, here he is. But they didn't do it, did they? Why didn't they do it? Because they couldn't do it, because there was no body. Also, it's interesting that it was women who were the first witnesses to the resurrection. (laughs) We've come a long way since those days. But back in those days, the testimony of a woman was pretty worthless. And so if you were going to make up a story about the resurrection, you would not have women being the prime witnesses. You would have men, because women typically wouldn't really be believed. Uh, And so all these things come together. How do you explain the fact of the empty tomb and no body? The third fact is probably the most significant, uh, and that is that people reported seeing the risen Jesus. There were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. Now, this actually is not a disputed fact in any way at all. Nobody disputes the fact that the apostles and others believed that they had seen the risen Jesus. What people will dispute is whether they actually did see the risen Jesus, but nobody argues the fact that they genuinely believed that they did. Uh, And we know there was the the 12 uh, uh, disciples, Peter, James, John, and the others, Um, and there was a dramatic change in their lives, wasn't there? Because you think before the crucifixion, you know, Jesus was going to the cross. Peter denied Jesus three times. They all fled and ran away, and they were all sorrowful. None of them were even expecting a resurrection, even though Jesus had told them he was going to rise from the dead. So what changed to turn those into dramatic, powerful witnesses declaring to the whole Roman Empire that Jesus is risen from the dead if they did not believe that they had seen the risen Jesus? Uh, There were also skeptics who came to believe uh, after seeing Jesus, notably James, the half-brother of Jesus, who never believed in Jesus through his life. But he came to believe upon seeing the resurrected Jesus. And then, of course, and most significantly, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who was the chief persecutor of the church. He hated Christians. He was trying to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. What turned him into the greatest evangelist for the truth of the gospel that the world has seen? If not, him seeing the risen and ascended Christ there on the road to Damascus. 
And so how do we explain the fact of the eyewitnesses? You know, some would say, well, you know, it was just a legend that grew. You know, somebody said, oh, yeah, that guy looked like Jesus. And then somebody else said, oh, that was Jesus. And somebody else said, Jesus is risen from the dead, you know, kind of like a Chinese whispers kind of thing. Doesn't make any sense. In fact, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you know, uh, when the Apostle Paul says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And he goes on to say he was seen Uh, by many and lists all those witnesses and he's there he's quoting a very early creed of the early church from many years before Uh, the idea that jesus had risen from the dead wasn't just some myth that developed over time it was believed very early on by the entire church so it wasn't just a myth that emerged over a period of time was it a lie did they just make it all up you know what, we're bored today, let's just make up a lie and say everyone that Jesus rose from the dead and go around telling everybody about it, even though we're going to be hated and persecuted and beaten up and ultimately killed. So what, it'll be good fun, won't it? No. You know, many people will die for a lie that they believe to be true, but nobody's going to die for a lie that they know to be a lie and they just made up. That makes no sense. You know, were they deceived? Was it all a hoax? You know, did they think they saw him? And, and the Apostle Paul's a big problem there because Paul was a very intelligent man. He was a very intelligent man. He knew the Old Testament scriptures inside out and he hated the church. Was Paul the kind of man that would just all of a sudden change his entire life around just because of uh, somebody could fool him into thinking that Jesus had risen from the dead? I don't think so. Others would say, well, they just hallucinated. They just thought they saw Jesus. And that happens, you know, 500, 600 people all having the same hallucination in different places at different times over a long period of time. No, that's not the way hallucinations work. It doesn't work like that. And so how do you explain the fact that people said, I saw the risen Jesus? What is the explanation for that? Final fact, the fact of the explosive growth of the church. Now, it's interesting because messianic claims in first century Israel were not uncommon. There were other preachers who went around preaching and they drew a following for a while, uh, but they either died or were killed by the Romans as insurrectionists. uh, And what would happen is their followers would sort of disobey, disband and all give up and go home. Yet when Jesus died, his followers didn't just give up and go home. Uh, Rather than that, they actually went to the ends of the earth proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, add to that fact that the idea of a resurrection at that point in time was completely foreign to Jewish tradition and understanding of resurrection. They believed in a resurrection of everybody in the final day, but they didn't believe in any kind of resurrection of one individual in the middle of human history. So so it wasn't a Jewish idea. Uh, Plus, they were a group of cowardly fishermen Right, who had no um, kind of you know, physical strength or presence or so on, most of them, and yet they became the most bold evangelists that the world has ever seen, even in the face of persecution, hatred, opposition, and death. And then when you think about it, if you were going to make up a story and spread a religion, I've got a good one. There's an obscure town called Nazareth, and there's a carpenter there. Uh, that nobody's ever heard of. And he is the one that is the saviour of the world. Oh, and by the way, he rose from the dead. I mean, 
If you were going to come up with a massive message, I mean, you wouldn't go with that. doesn't make any sense yet. This is the message that was declared. This is the message that spread throughout the world. And that is the message uh, that has uh, resulted in uh, the church that we see around the world today and over the last 2,000 years. And so how do we explain all these things? That's the question then. How do we explain all these things? What is the best explanation that fits the facts? You know, many people will look for a naturalistic explanation. You know, oh, well, the disciples obviously stole the body. Well, really? Oh, well, they were just hallucinating. Well, think about that for a moment. You know, oh, well, they were just lying. Are you sure? Because when you look at the facts, honestly and openly, it's not just reasonable to believe that God may well have raised Jesus from the dead. It is really the only explanation that fits the facts. It can be explained in no other way other than the fact that the testimony of the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead was indeed true. And you know, most people who reject Christianity, they don't reject it on the basis of a lack of evidence. They reject it on a basis of a lack of interest. They're not interested. It's not that they've examined all the evidence and they've come to the conclusion that it's a load of nonsense. Because if they did that, they wouldn't come to that conclusion. And so I think we can be absolutely certain as a fact of history that Jesus Christ did indeed rise from the dead. This isn't myth, it isn't fantasy, it isn't made up, it is rooted in fact and history. Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. And that then leads us to our second question, and that is this. Does the Spirit of God then dwell in you? It's not enough that Jesus was raised from the dead. And it's not enough even to know that that happened or even believe that that happened. Satan and all his demons know that it happened and they believe that it happened. Won't save them. Yes, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. But if we are to benefit from his resurrection, we must receive the spirit of God into our hearts and lives. Now, how does that happen? How does a person receive the Holy Spirit of God? Well, I think it's worth noting here in verse 11 uh, that Paul here is writing to believers. He's writing to the church. And the if that he uses in writing to them is not an if of doubt, but it's an if of certainty. It could be translated since. Since Christ is risen from the dead and dwells in you, then. And so he's not questioning whether they have the Holy Spirit. He is really affirming that they do have the Holy Spirit and therefore the promise of God that he talks about applies to them. And that is something that Paul also said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, when he said to them, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Holy Spirit dwells in you? You see, the teaching of the New Testament is clear. When a person comes to true saving faith in Jesus Christ, not only do they receive forgiveness for all of their sins, but the Holy Spirit then is given to indwell that person's life. And so the question of, is, of how does a person receive the indwelling Holy Spirit is the same question as asking how is a person saved? How does a person come into a saving relationship with 
God through Jesus Christ? And the answer is simple. To use the words of Jesus, believe in Jesus. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to believe uh, in Jesus? It doesn't mean just simply believe in the facts of his life and his death and even his resurrection. In the New Testament, it means something very specific. We read you what Peter declared on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. To the assembled crowds, after sharing the truth about Jesus, Jesus is the Messiah, sharing the truth of his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, Peter called on the crowd to repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repent is the first thing. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? It means to repent. The word repent means to turn around, to make a U-turn. It's a decisive turning away from sin and self-direction. Turning away from sin and self-direction, turning to righteousness and Christ. Repent of your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Baptized in the name of Jesus, yes, it talks about being baptized in water, but it's not the baptism in water that saves us. It's the reality that that baptism represents. To be baptized in the name of Jesus really means to fully believe in the truth about Jesus, believing that he is the Son of God, that he is Savior and Lord, that he died on the cross for my sin, and that he rose again the third day in victory over sin. And conquering our last enemy, death. And the essence of repentance and baptism in the name of Jesus is faith. Galatians 3.2, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Ephesians 2.8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast and so how do we receive the indwelling holy spirit well the holy spirit comes to dwell inside every single person who comes to believe in jesus christ as their personal lord and savior by repentance and faith trusting fully in him and him alone for salvation and in doing that a person then is justified before god that is made right made righteous in the sight of god is adopted into the family of god and receives the Holy Spirit to indwell them. And the question is, is, does the Holy Spirit of God dwell in you? Have you repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Him and him alone for salvation. Do you believe that he is the Son of God? Do you believe that he is Savior and Lord? Do you believe that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins? Do you believe that he rose from the dead, conquering sin and defeating death? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. And so, if Jesus Christ really did rise from the dead, and if the Spirit of God dwells in you, then the following promise applies to you. And that is, notice, 
He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now what does that mean? I think it means at least two things. We have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. The same spirit that has the power over death. Resurrection power. That same spirit is the same spirit who dwells in every true believer in Jesus Christ. And that means at least two things. It means that we have victory over death. Ultimately. That is what we refer to as glorification. But secondly, it means that we have victory over sin. Presently, practically. And that is what the Bible refers to as sanctification. Now, we'll just briefly conclude with saying a few words about those two things. Firstly, victory over death. Ultimately, that's the first implication of this truth. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. God giving life to our mortal bodies means that ultimately when Jesus Christ returns to this earth and Jesus Christ will return, that God is going to raise your body from the dead and give you a new body, a new glorified body fit for eternal life. Now, by the way, the first thing that tells us actually is that God cares about our bodies. The body is important to God. He is the creator of the body, after all. God could simply just let our bodies rot and do something else, but no. Our bodies are going to be raised and transformed. And God cares about our bodies because he cares about his glory. Let me explain that. The bodies that we have now are mortal bodies. That's what Paul says. I think we all know that, right? I don't think there's any argument about that. The word mortal means literally subject to death. In other words, we will die. We all know that. Our bodies are subject to sin, subject to death, and therefore are subject to pain, uh, suffering, corruption, mortality. But that is not how God originally created man. Man was created in God's image for God's glory, the Bible tells us, and man's body originally displayed God's glory in the world. And back there in the garden, there was no pain, there was no suffering, there was no sin, there was no death. But when sin entered the world, all that changed. The body became marred by sin and subjected to the effects of sin, pain, suffering, death. And so while these bodies that we have now will suffer, will grow old, and ultimately will die, God one day will give us new bodies that 
will not do any of those things, but new bodies that will be forever filled with and displaying his glory. 1 Corinthians 15. We begin in verse 50. Read the whole chapter. It's Easter Sunday. Before you go to bed, read the whole chapter tonight. But we'll begin in verse 50. Listen how Paul explains this. He says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, our bodies presently are subject to mortality and corruption, sin, pain, suffering and death. But one day Jesus Christ will return to this earth. And when Jesus Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise. And then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to be with them together to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall all be changed, and thus we shall all be forever with the Lord. God is going to give us new glorious bodies, bodies that radiate the glory of God, bodies that are fit for eternity, bodies that are free from pain, free from suffering, and ultimately free from death. And you think, wow, that sounds pretty amazing, How's that going to look? What's that going to be like? You know, John in 1 John 3 verse 2 said, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, that is when Christ is revealed, when he comes back, when he returns to this earth, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So what will our bodies be like? Well, they will be like the body of Christ. The glorified body of Christ. Uh, Daniel chapter 12 gives us some insight as well. Daniel, first couple of verses, or first three verses. Daniel says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 13 verse 43 speaking of that day, said the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And so the first wonderful implication of this promise of God that is true, because Jesus Christ has risen again and is true if the Holy Spirit of God dwells in you, is that no matter what the state of your physical body right here and right now may be, one day God will give you a new body. Your body will be transformed, a body that is free from pain, sin, suffering and death, a body that will radiate his glory, a body that is fit for eternity, a body that will dwell in the presence of God in which there is fullness of joy forevermore. And that is the ultimate hope that we have that is true 
because of the resurrection of Jesus. And we have to close with one more point. Because this isn't all just about the future, although it is gloriously about the future. It is also about the present. Because God doesn't just care about our bodies in the future. He's not just saying, okay, well, forget about your body now. You just do what you want. One day I'll sort it all out. God cares about our bodies now, today. The presence of the indwelling spirit of God is not just for victory over death in the future, ultimately our glorification, but it is also for power over sin in the present. It is for our sanctification. The word sanctification literally means uh, to become holy, to become more like Christ. And it is by the Holy Spirit of God, the power of the Spirit at work in our hearts, that we are changed bit by bit, little by little, day by day more into the image of Christ. And the sanctification is the will of God for each and every one of us. Now, just quickly, sin is something we all experience in the Christian life. When a person comes to faith in Christ, we are made spiritually alive in Christ. We are justified before God. We are adopted into the family of God, but we still live in this body, this mortal body that is subject to sin and death. And if you're a Christian here this morning and you struggle with sin, join the club. You're not the only one. We all struggle with sin. Paul explained it in Galatians 5.17 when he said, The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. You see, sin... is not sin because God just arbitrarily decided to make sin sin. It's not that God looked down from heaven and said, oh, that looks fun, I know what I'll do, I'll make it sin. (laughs) That's not how it works. Sin is sin because sin destroys. Sin is destructive. It destroys lives, it destroys marriages, it destroys families, It destroys cultures. It destroys nations. Sin is dangerous. Sin is destructive. And it is a powerful thing. And it is oftentimes an attractive thing. It appeals to our flesh. It can tempt us. And sin oftentimes can be very difficult to resist. So how do we overcome sin? Final thing, turn to Romans chapter 6. And this is where we... We'll wrap it up. Romans chapter 6. How do we overcome sin? Well, the answer is we don't. Jesus did. There is only one solution for sin. God only has one plan for dealing with sin. And that plan is death. A dead man will never sin. Because he's dead. And when a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, we die to sin. Let me read what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For if he who has died has been freed from sin... For he who has died has been freed from sin. 
Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also, believer in Jesus Christ, in whom the Spirit of God dwells, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And you think, well, how do I do that? That sounds really hard. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. You see, before a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, whether they realize it or not, they are slaves to sin. Paul says that here. Jesus said it in John chapter 8. Sin dominates them, controls them, dominates their lives. But when a person comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ, something dramatic happens. And that is the power of sin over that person's life is broken. The Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell in the heart of that person and breaks that power of sin. And so whereas a person before Christ was alive to sin, living in sin and was dead to God, a person who comes to saving faith in Christ now is dead to sin but alive to God. And the life that we now live is the life of faith. Faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave his life for us. But the key practically is this in verse 11. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Why? Because when Christ died for our sins, you died with him. You are dead to sin. And the life that we live is the life of faith. It is the resurrection life. It is the life in Christ. Now, of course, our body always wants to come back to life, doesn't it? It wants to bring itself back from the dead. It causes problems. Reckon yourselves dead to sin. Reckon is a word of faith. It's a position I take by faith. When I am tempted to sin, I say, I've been crucified with Christ. I am dead to sin. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. I don't need to give in to this temptation because God has given me the power to overcome this temptation through the Holy Spirit who now dwells within me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul tells us that we were bought with a price. Therefore, we are to glorify God in our body and in our spirit. Why? Because they belong to God. Our lives are to be lived for the glory of God. And we are enabled to live our lives to the glory of God through the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. And so, the power of the resurrection, it's the greatest power in the world. It is the power over sin and death. And Jesus conquered sin and death when he rose from the dead. And that power over sin and death is the same power that by the Holy Spirit dwells in us. And if the same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you.
what a glorious and wonderful truth that is for all of us this Easter. Father, we thank you for your word to us today. And we ask that you'll bless your word to our hearts. We ask that you would help us, give us the strength by your spirit to live the life, the resurrection life that you've called us to live. The life of victory, Lord, over sin and struggle and all the things that we struggle with so much in this life. As we look forward to the day, as we look forward to the blessed hope that we have, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, may that hope that we have purify us, even as he is pure, that we may live lives that bring glory to you. Lord, both personally, in the church, and in the world. So, Father, we give you thanks and praise for all that you have done for us, in and through Jesus Christ this Easter Sunday. In Jesus' name. Amen.